If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to Dig, the History Podcast. We don't always do episodes inspired by current events. In fact, we haven't done very many at all recently. It's nice for you and for us to take a break from the stress of the news cycle and explore something a little different. Although somehow we tend to bring things back around to current events all the time, don't we? Yeah. But a few months ago, while we were eating pizza during a recording break, the four of us talked about the appalling spectacle of the Kavanaugh hearings. I think we were actually sat and watched the SNL sketches, um, kind of poking fun at the Kavanaugh hearings. And of mm-hmm. course, we're laughing, but we're also really kind of horrified. And I mentioned that the whole thing reminded me very much of a book that um, Avril and I read in a class taught by our mentor, Susan Kahn, called Women's American Women's History. And the book was called Rape and Sexual Power in Early America by Sharon Block. The parallels between what Sharon describes in her book and the rhetoric that we heard on the news were really disturbing. At first, when I mentioned I wanted to do an episode on the book, we all kind of weren't sure. Not so much that the episode would be bad, but because it would be so hard to keep thinking about rape and sexual power in such an intense way. But in the end, I decided that it was just too important. We're going to start uh, right in the beginning with a trigger warning. So um, we're going to be talking about a lot of tough stuff, and some of it may be triggering to people. Um, Most of it definitely will not be appropriate for little kids. So you might just want to listen to this one with headphones, uh, you know, and just keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm Sarah. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. So before we start, I just want to say that this is a very dense book with a lot in it, and we'll just be scratching the surface. We highly suggest that you pick this book up however you can, uh, buy it, get it from the library, and then give it some of your time and attention. It won't let you down. In the introduction to Rape and Sexual Power, Sharon Block poses the question, does rape have a history? And if it does, how do we get at it? This is an interesting place to start, I think, because it sort of forces us to reckon with the fact that the word rape means a wide variety of things, and that what we believe constitutes rape changes over time and space. Just as one example, up until the 1970s, most states did not consider it a rape if a husband forced sex on his wife. Husbands could not rape their wives because it was understood that sex was a husband's marital right. 
even today, definitions of rape have changed, you know, even over my lifetime or over your lifetime. Uh, we have much more nuanced ideas today about what counts as consent than even when I was in high school. And I'm not that old. <laughs> like not it, was, at all. No. it wasn't a minute ago, but it wasn't that long ago. So tracing a history of rape can be somewhat tricky because people in the past didn't abide by our modern definitions of rape. Right. And, you know, what we might consider rape today wouldn't have been considered rape um, in times past. Right. So how did people in early America think about consent? Block says that there were no hard and fast distinctions between what could be sex and what could be rape. The only sanctioned sex was that that took place between husband and wife. Sex manuals like Conjugal Love or Pleasures of the Marriage Bed Considered and Aristotle's masterpiece made it very clear that marriage was the only relationship that made sex acceptable and that the purpose of having sex was to produce children. This was, of course, shaped by early Americans' worldview, which was heavily influenced by Christian religious belief. Within their particular Christian framework, Americans believed that women were made, drawn from Adam's rib, as some, like, politician recently just said, um, from, like, I don't know, Iowa or something. Sorry, Iowa. I don't know. This probably wasn't Iowa. I I shouldn't say. (laughs) Casting aspersions on Iowa. I don't know. So, you know, these women were made, drawn from Adam's rib, to serve men. Second. Right. Made from men for men. Right? Like, (laughs) like FUBU, but worse. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> don't you remember FUBU clothes? You yes. don't remember FUBU? Yes, okay. I do. Yes, I do. Anyway. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin, for instance, declared in 1758 that women were, quote, designed to gratify our passions, end quote. Benjamin Franklin, so gross. Yeah. The idea that women were made for men's pleasure was important to how early Americans thought about sex and rape. Men were always understood as active. They were, by nature, the pursuers, and women were the receivers. Sex was often described in terms of military strategy. Men had to campaign to seize a desired object, while women were careful to protect their defenses. A woman who was considered promiscuous was described as having, quote-unquote, surrendered her citadel. One story that Block shares is a fictional exchange between a military officer and a young widow. The officer grabbed the young woman, and the young woman asked whether he, quote, fought after the French way, taking towns before you declare war. And what she's kind of saying there is, are you accustomed to having sex with someone before marriage? Right? You're, you know, taking towns before you've even declared a war. Mm-hmm. Ooh. <laughs> Sexy language. <laughs> what this meant was that women were basically incapable of giving consent because they were so bound by their need to be chaste. So this made the line between consensual sex and rape really murky. Men might have to use some force in order to get any woman to have sex with them because women never desired sex. At the same time, people also believed that sometimes men were just not capable of controlling their urges. A fabulous example of this is William Byrd. Byrd was a plantation owner in Virginia in the late 17th and early 18th century. He was sort of a quintessential colonial elite white guy, involved in everything. He dabbled in Greek and Latin. He wrote some histories and sort of cultural studies. Um, He was important in Virginia colonial politics. Byrd was also a garbage human being, and he beat his slaves regularly and brutally and had sex with every woman in his vicinity. Mm -hmm. We know this because he recorded his sexual exploits in his diary. 
He's constantly flourishing this woman and saluting that woman. Yeah. So again, really military words, yeah. but yeah, flourishing and saluting and rogering. Of he's conquest. He's really into rogering as well. Um, my husband had to read William Byrd's diary when he was in college, and apparently all that sunk into James's brain were the sex parts. So he's just constantly saying like Roger to the wife because that's what William Byrd says all the time. <laughs> anyway. We get a glimpse of how colonial Americans thought about men's sexuality by looking at how Byrd behaved, or maybe we should say how he misbehaved. In October of 1709, he writes in his diary about staying in a tavern in Williamsburg, Virginia, and calling for a serving girl to come in and attend to him. When the quote-unquote wench came in, he grabbed her, groping her and kissing her, for which, he says, God forgive me. Later on, he writes about having a dinner party, and when everyone retired to their bedrooms, he followed someone named Mrs. Chiswell to her room, quote, kissing her on the bed until she was angry. Poor Mrs. Bird was not particularly happy about this. Bird writes this in his diary. My wife was uneasy about this and cried when the company was gone. Well, gee willikers, you know, <laughs> imagine that. I can't imagine why. <laughs> right. Afterward, uh, Bird noted that he neglected to say his prayers that night, quote, which I should not have done because I ought to beg pardon for the lust I had for another man's wife. And that this to me is really telling. The failing is that he wasn't able to control himself and that he effectively trespassed on another man's territory. It's not understood as a violation of that woman's consent. Right. So he wasn't <laughs> upset for her. He was right. upset that he had let himself down. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. Also, I put a side note in here for myself just to say that if you read his diary, um, it's obviously there are parts of this diary that are profoundly disturbing. Beating beating his slaves really brutally, often young, young children. Um, but he also regularly says, I danced my dance. Which just every I can't even say it with a straight face. Does it it's mean so funny. he had sex? Or no, it... it means he. It's like it was an exercise like routine that he did every day. <laughs> it's an actual dance. It's an actual dance. Okay. And so you'll be reading, and he's like, you know, read some Latin, went to town, Rogered the wife. I danced to my dance. <laughs> <laughs> and it just every time I read it, it just really like makes me laugh. People used so much more descriptive verbs back then because now we would say like I had tea or something, but they would say. Drank tea, right. and it's like, well, duh, you had, yeah. you know, you drank tea, but right. we just kind of have like, I don't know, that's, and, you know, like very. Now we would say, forward. I did my dance, but he's <laughs> saying, oh no, I danced my dance. <laughs> yes, you know. So I picture this like Napoleon Dynamite, <laughs> dancing like, his dance, dancing by himself, dur, yeah. Dur, dur, out, yeah, with a boombox in the garage or something. So, um, there's another example from William Byrd that illustrates how some early Americans thought about consent. Byrd described one encounter he observed where the quote woman struggled just enough to make her admirer more eager, end quote, indicating that denying consent or resisting could actually be interpreted as enticing. A woman might perform chastity so well that it would act as a turn-on for an eager suitor. He also talked about a woman who, quote, would certainly have been ravished if her timely consent had not prevented the violence, end quote. In other words, the rape wasn't averted because she was able to get the guy to leave her alone, but because she eventually gave in and consented. Right. Which right. is, we would think about that very differently today. Right. Right. That's coercion, right? Right. And that 
many people would still consider a rape or a sexual assault. And right. at the time, that's not how they thought about it at all. Right. Well, the way they, they want to have their cake and eat it, too, so that you can, you know, if, if a woman wants to have sex with you, then you can have sex with her. And if she doesn't, then she still wants to have sex. You just have to force her. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, Sharon Block shares one example after another of men resorting to rape after being rejected by women. In one very disturbing example, a man named Patrick Kennedy propositioned a woman for sex in 1777. When she refused, he, quote, struck her and said that he would have it. Kennedy then tied her to a tree and raped her. It was clear that the encounter could have resulted in consensual sex if the woman hadn't refused. In other words, the blame wasn't really on the man, but on the woman. Right? She could have avoided the rape if only she right. had just said yes. You could have not been raped if you just wanted, if you just had sex with me. Right. right. The law also held women responsible, or at least partly responsible, in their own attacks. Courts paid close attention to how women spoke and acted during encounters that they characterized as rapes. When Mary Jenkins claimed that a man had tried to rape her, the court punished her attacker, but also her, for public lewdness. Because right. it happened in public. Yeah. Women were also trapped by the conflicting roles they were expected to play. On the one hand, women might be seen as filling a temptress role, where men were drawn to and tempted by their sexuality. On the other hand, women were expected to be the ones that regulated men's sexual desires, keeping both parties chaste. A poem called The Maiden's Complaint from 1736 sums this up nicely. Quote, poor girls are left if they deny, and if they yield, undone. End quote. This wasn't quite the same way of thinking about women's sexuality that would be later propagated by the Victorians, who believed that good, read, white, middle-class women were cold and didn't desire sex at all. Early Americans believed that women did have sexual desires and were capable of enjoying sex, but it was in their nature to be the protectors of chastity. So women were bound by their nature to say no, um, but they might actually mean yes. Right. For instance, a story from 1798 described a situation where a man forced a young woman to drink with him until she was really, really drunk, then had sex with her with her drunken consent. When she went home the next day, her parents were livid, yelling at her that she was ruined. She replied, I wish I was to be ruined so every night of my life and live to the age of Methuselah. So she had to be coerced into consenting. But once she did, she was glad that she had. Right. The, the alcohol kind of put her in a situation where she wasn't able to perform that chastity anymore. And so she mm -hmm. did consent and then she was glad that she did. Yeah. So this way of thinking about women that if you just if you just push them, if you yeah. just help them to get over themselves, they'll be happy. Right. That it's they like if you lower in. your inhibitions a right. little bit. Yeah. And that's right. all it is. When yep. people when women say no, mm -hmm. you just need to push them further. Right. Right. Another very telling poem was entitled Modern Chastity or An Agreeable Rape, which barf, right? The poem makes the argument that since women are bound by their own natural chastity, but secretly desire sex, it's incumbent upon men to use force to get them to get what they really secretly want. And Block sums this up really well. She says that women's sexual role was, quote, always resisting, therefore never really resisting. This just That's feels so, <laughs> so I mean yeah that that sentence is probably the one sentence that like sticks with me the most and it's the mm -hmm. one that it's the one that comes to me the most often when I hear things like like the Kavanaugh hearings right mm -hmm. and, and various other uh moments where issues of sexual assault or rape are in the news 
because I think we still believe that. Mm-hmm. I think we still believe that, that women mm-hmm. say no when what they really mean is yes. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah. And that and that something like wearing certain kinds of clothes yes. or getting drunk with a, a man or even kissing another man or, some, you know, a man, that that is evidence of their wanting to have sex mm-hmm. um, secretly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when they say no, they're just like trying to they're, – they're just too inhibited to, yes, yes. to really let go like mm-hmm. they want to. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, that's – I think still how people think about it. I think so too. Yeah, I, I mean, mean not everybody, but right. But I, I mean, how often do you hear about like, well, she was sending mixed signals, right? Right. Like, what is he supposed to think? She right. drank with him and did drugs and kissed him. Right. What is he supposed to think? Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, men, Block says, created consent for women who had not done so for themselves by interpreting their body language, actions, and words as evidence of their willingness. So this often meant that men could argue that they might be guilty of fornication but not rape. Emmanuel Lewis tried to make this argument when on trial for child rape in 1734. He insisted that the child, a five-year-old girl, had indicated her consent by adjusting her clothing and remaining calm instead of crying. Another man, Ephraim Wheeler, Ephraim and Wheeler, <laughs> uh, argued that his daughter, who he had raped in our definition of the word, and I think she was like 11 or 12, yeah. by the way, yeah. um, justified his actions this way, quote, from the awe and respect which a child naturally feels toward a parent, perhaps she did not make so violent and persevering resistance to the outrage, which he thought she must have done had she been totally opposed, end quote. Yeah, which is, I just can't Horrifying. Even. Horrifying, um, right? So the court made a distinction between her lack of desire and her lack of consent. Maybe she wasn't very enthusiastic, but she also didn't fight back very hard. How could a woman definitively indicate that she did not consent to an encounter? The only real way was to assert that they would rather be dead than be raped. Women in 18th century novels regularly declared that they would rather die or be killed than defiled. Court records also show that real women echoed these sentiments. In 1728, Elizabeth Painter told an attacker that, quote, she would rather he should dash out her brains and stamp her into the ground than have him rape her. In 1729, Anne Eastworthy told a man, quote, not to abuse me thus, but rather kill me. On a fairly straightforward level, this shows us that women were supposed to value their sexual purity over even their own lives. But I think on another level, it's really important to note that this was also the only way to effectively prove that you did not consent. You couldn't just say no. You couldn't just try to run away. You couldn't just try to remove yourself from the situation. You had to essentially beg for death to prove that you really, really didn't consent. What about murdering the person who tried to have sex with you? That would prove it, right? Cause you I imagine it would. I don't, There, I don't, and I could be wrong about this, but in my reading of Block, I don't think there are any stories where a woman right. did. Like the Celia situation. Well, yeah. I mean, later, though. That's a good, that's a good example. I mean, for those who aren't familiar with Celia, we do have an episode on, on Celia, if you want to go back and listen to that to know what we're talking about here. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, that's a different situation. Not only is it a little bit later on, but I think more importantly, it's because she's enslaved. Mm-hmm. That she's not, that that's not an effective excuse. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The fact that she was repeatedly 
raped. Right, and I don't. Um, I think I don't know about at that point. I'm, I don't remember what year. Celia's in the 1850s, so yeah. coverture had already started to be dismantled at that point. But in this early period, this is a period when a lot of women are comparing um, English wifehood um, to to slavery. Ah, obviously a problematic comparison, mm-hmm. duh. Mm-hmm. But um, there is a comparison to be made in a sense that that both were considered property. And this is yeah. the point where, like, a father could sue someone who raped his daughter yes. for, um, you know, theft. Yeah. For ruining the value of his property. And you see William Byrd saying that, right? Like, he, he he's upset with himself for having trespassed on another man's right. property. Right. Right. As, like, as if he's a thief instead of, but a potential he's rapist. not worried about the feelings of the quote-unquote property, right? right? Exactly. So there's some really interesting ideas about, you know, um, people being property, right. which calls to mind slavery, but obviously yes. kind of a different yeah. context in Celia for sure. Right. So um, this is a really, really old idea. The ancient legend of the Roman Lucretia is perhaps the most famous iteration of this idea. Lucretia was the wife of Lucius Tarquinius Colatinus, a relative of the Roman king Lucius Tarquinius Superbus. One day, Colatinus invited the king's son, Tarquin, to his home. Tarquin snuck into Lucretia's bedroom and told her that she'd had two choices. She could either consent to let him have sex with her, or he would murder her and one of her slaves, after which he would position their bodies to make it appear as though she'd been having an affair with her slave, shaming her widower husband uh, in the process. Lucretia had no real choice and was raped. The next day, she dressed in black and went to her father, who was a prefect, and fell at his feet, weeping and calling on him and his court for vengeance. While the men discussed what actions to take, she pulled out a dagger and stabbed herself in the heart, dying in her father's arms. Her suicide sparked the overthrow of the Roman monarchy and the transition to the Roman Republic. So it figures really in a really important way into the Roman mythology of how they explain the transition from the monarchy into the Republic to themselves. Mm -hmm. Over the centuries, Lucretia's rape and suicide were fetishized, particularly in art. Numerous paintings depict Lucretia, often semi-nude, breasts exposed, knife blade poised by her tender, enticing skin. Others depict her naked, trying to fight off Tarquin as he attempts to rape her. One sculpture made in 1804 by Spanish artist Damia Company is particularly fascinating to me. It depicts Lucretia dead with the knife she used to commit suicide at her feet. She's laying limply in a chair, one of her breasts exposed, her nipple aroused. Her dress is made of an extremely thin fabric. And this is obviously, it's carved in marble, so it's not actual fabric, but it's that style of of marble carving so that it looks like a beautifully draped fabric. Mm -hmm. Um, And this thin fabric is clinging to each curve of her frame. Her right hand is on her thigh, just inches away from her vulva. It's incredibly sexualized. And... It reminds me of the ways that women's corpses are often depicted in medical illustrations so that they're dead but still sexually enticing, always molded by and for a male gaze. So even though Lucretia is dead, she's still perfect and beautiful, which, of course, she could no longer be if she were still alive since Tarquin had defiled her. In the 18th century, though, the most famous example of a woman putting death before the dishonor of rape came from the 1748 English novel Clarissa, The History of a Young Lady by Samuel Richardson. 
In the novel, young Clarissa Harlow is the young daughter of a nouveau riche family desperate for land and titles to go with their cash. When Clarissa becomes attached to Robert Lovelace, an heir to an earldom, it causes all sorts of family strife, as the marriage has the potential to provide Clarissa, but not the rest of the family, with a title, as well as some land deeded to Clarissa directly leaving the Harlow family. Clarissa escapes the Harlows with Lovelace, trying to escape another marriage that her brother had arranged. Lovelace, though, turns out to be a complete jerk, and Clarissa repeatedly refuses to marry him, even though he's effectively keeping her prisoner. Lovelace finally decides that if he rapes Clarissa, it will ruin her, and she'll have no other prospects except him. The plan backfires, though, and Clarissa's more determined than ever to not marry him, and more or less wills herself to die. She gets sick and sort of just fades away. Of course, always perfectly beautiful and in complete control of her faculties. So she still has her virtue. She still has her beauty. And she's accepting death to protect it. Yeah. She just... She just fades yeah. away. How sexy is that? Yeah. 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 That's the point is that that's, it's like desirable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that's what I mean by by emphasizing that she she slips away without any of her beauty being affected or her brain being affected, right? She just chooses – she kind of forces herself to die in a way, right? But in, also in this way that keeps her beautiful and desirable, The trope of women who were able to use extreme willpower to either die or to fight back against their attackers was a regular trope in early American literature. I'm not going to profile each and every one, but I I just have to share this one, which is called A Very Surprising Narrative of a Young Woman Who Was Discovered in the Gloomy Mansion of a Rocky Cave. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, the exclamation point on the end is in in the the original title. title. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> I could just say it over I know. and over again. I just 18th century it. titles are the best. It's They're, so wonderful. I'm surprised there's not an or. Yeah. Or. Right. <laughs> Jonathan. Yes, like, there's exactly. always some, like, short. It's like, why don't you just go with that? Right, right. Clarissa, right? Like, right. why not just make it Clarissa? Right. Um, no. A very surprising narrative of a young woman who was discovered in the gloomy mansion of a rocky cave. Okay. <laughs> So in this story, which was published in Vermont in 1796, a young woman falls in love with a respectable young man, but her father refuses to bless the union. So the couple runs away. Fearing that her father would hurt them, they hid out in the Vermont wilderness, only to be captured by Native Americans who murdered her lover. The woman somehow manages to escape the Native Americans, even though they murdered her boyfriend, and she runs even further into the woods. Uh, when a giant then finds her and makes her live with him in his gloomy cave. He says that she will have to sleep with him, uh, but rather than let that happen, the young woman somehow manages to chew through her bindings, then chops up the giant with an axe into tiny pieces, distributes all of the tiny pieces in the woods, and then lives alone in the cave for nine years. And then, of course, it ends by her father finding her and forgiving her and then giving her a bunch of money. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this is kind of a silly story, but um, but I, it's still in the same kind of. Right. Yeah. Line. And that so she's better off being a murderer than defiled. The very surprising narrative is wacky, but it also uses very common early American narrative device that teaches that women should fight back to the literal death to prevent a rape and kill themselves or at least will themselves to die if they are raped or kill someone else. Right, um, right. So if a woman did not behave in a very particular way, it served as proof that a sexual assault wasn't rape. It couldn't be rape. 
For instance, if a woman uh, gave in to a man, such as um, in another novel called The Coquette, um, in which the main character, the flirtatious Eliza, is warned, quote, if she will play with a lion, let her beware of its paw, end quote. When Eliza is sexually used by the man she hopes to marry, um, but he ends up marrying someone else, um, she's at fault for her own downfall. Women were expected to police not only their own sexual behavior, but men's sexual behavior also. This translated into another recognizable facet of early American rape. Men in positions of privilege who were able to coerce and manipulate women into essentially giving up and giving in, therefore avoiding the obvious cries of rape. Early Americans recognized a forceful, violent assault by a stranger as an obvious rape. But when a young woman was coerced into sex with a family member or when a master gave his enslaved woman no choice... That didn't really seem like rape to early Americans. And um, I might add, still, we, ha- we still have a hard time with that, right? When, mm-hmm. it's, when it's maybe coercion instead of the, a violent assault by a stranger. Yeah. We have a harder time with that even today. Right. I mean, I think the dominant narrative has generally changed, but it's still something that is contested, yeah. as yeah. we can see. Yeah, um, absolutely. Even though I think we're fairly used to hearing about the sexual access that white slavers had over enslaved women, you know, that sounds terrible to kind of put it that way, but I think we do know more about that as a society um, today. But something that Block does that I don't think we see as much in history is the other kinds of really horrifying sexual coercions that could take place, specifically between fathers or father figures and daughters. Fathers or stepfathers who were called out for abusing their daughters often asserted their right as the head of household. Yeah, and we'll see this a lot in uh, my episode in the series about um, bastardy and child abandonment, Mm -hmm. that um, it was very common for masters of a household to seduce, was the word, you know, their servants. And it's unclear what seduction really means. Yeah. in that context, they yeah. didn't understand that when you have power over someone, you can coerce them to do things that coercion doesn't mean consent. Yeah. Right. Seduction is a big word that came up a lot in this book as well, because right. it kind of blurs the lines. They often, even in something that would be a clear rape, right, they would mm-hmm. refer to it in court as a seduction. Yeah, because they're thinking of women in this way that mm-hmm. that even if they do want it, they have to pretend they don't. And, yeah. you know, like it all yeah. kind of folds in on itself. It's crazy. So, um, for instance, when James Weller was confronted for assaulting his stepdaughter, he laughed and said, quote, who has a better right? End quote. When one woman tried to stop her husband from abducting their daughter so he could sexually abuse her without interference, he responded that, quote, as a father, he had the right to command her to go. End quote. And we mentioned um, Ephraim Wheeler before. He was the one who, who raped his daughter and claimed that she consented. Mm-hmm. Um, when he was on trial, he testified that he took his daughter Betsy into the woods and instructed her that he would kill her if she did not lie down on the ground. Then, forcibly, he threw her on the ground and raped her. Yet, this lawyer still argued, um, the defense lawyer, he argued that Betsy was complicit, even willing, because she hadn't fought hard enough to avoid going into the woods with her father, saying, quote, why'd she go into the woods with him without being dragged by violence? Would you not strongly suspect that these transactions were not much against her will? End quote. He also said that he didn't think the father raped her because why, if he was going to rape his daughter, why would he have his son waiting with their horses? Because he had, like, a son that was waiting with the horse, and the guy's like, who would want to have sex with their son right nearby? And it's like, what the 
he's raping his daughter. I don't think he has that many scruples about this. Right. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> Men also had essentially unlimited access to their wives. There were no laws or strictures against what we would now call marital rape. The bonds of marriage sanctioned sexual relations between husband and wife, and it was understood that men had a right to their wives' bodies. And because marital rape basically did not exist, it's impossible to trace it historically, at least not in this time period, which I think is super telling. The silence is powerful evidence of the power that men had over their wives. The power that white men wielded, not only in their ability to rape, but in their ability to get away with it, becomes even more clear when we contrast it with black men's experience of rape accusations and trials. Between 1700 and 1800, of the 174 men that were executed for rape, 80% were black men. This is pretty jarring on its own, but what makes it even more striking is that the population in the East Coast in the early American era was predominantly white, meaning that this is totally disproportionate to the population. And of course, as Block points out, there's a racial disparity that's even more disturbing. In 95% of rape cases that went to prosecution, the victim was white. We need to step back here for just a moment to talk about one of the most powerful, almost even foundational American myths, the myth of the black rapist, which obviously, I think, plays really importantly into the the statistics that Marissa just mentioned. If you're familiar with the beloved novel To Kill a Mockingbird, you're familiar with this myth on at least some level. The idea that Black men are consumed to the point of irrationality and uncontrollability with a desire to rape white women. This was routinely the explanation given by whites to explain lynching, that the black male victim either had raped a white woman or had attempted to rape a white woman, and that white men, acting in their capacity as protector and defender of white womanhood, had no choice but to exact quick and definitive justice. But this was not true. And we don't just know this through historical analysis. We know it through the investigative journalism of people like Ida B. Wells, who found that rape was used as a justification for lynching, but that the actual underlying motive was racist and often economic intimidation. For instance, um, she finds that, you know, situations where a black person might have opened a grocery store that stole business away from a white grocery store, for instance. So Mm -hmm. it was this kind of obviously a racist tactic, but also it often had underlying sort of economic motivations as well. Right. The trope is extensive in the 19th and early 20th century literature. Of course, To Kill a Mockingbird, published in 1960, is a very famous depiction of the myth. But it flips the myth on its head by making the story about trying to prove Tom Robinson was framed for rape, that he was innocent. Most literature, of course, uh, presented the myth uncritically as a way to spread the idea that black men were dangerous and needed to be controlled, whether through extra legal methods like lynching or legal methods like aggressive prosecution and strict sentencing. One of the most notorious purveyors of the myth was post-Civil War Southern writer Thomas Dixon, who famously wrote The Klansman, the book that was adapted by filmmaker D.W. Griffith into The Birth of a Nation. One of the main storylines in the film is when the lovely young and, of course, white Flora Cameron is pursued through the woods by Gus, a freed slave and soldier. Although the censorship constraints made it so that Gus was not portrayed explicitly as trying to rape Flora, it's heavily insinuated that that was his intention. Yeah, the, the film makes it very clear that that's what's going on. He's pursuing her sort of up a mountain. Now, side note here. This scene is markedly different from the scene in the original novel. In the novel, the young woman is actually named Marion. 
Four black men break into Marion's home, and while the action isn't described, it's clear that Marion was gang-raped. When Marion wakes up, she decides that her only option is to... Commit suicide. Commit suicide, because she's ruined, right? She dons a white dress, right? Symbolism. And she and her mother walk out into the woods. When her mother asks if she's afraid to die, Marion responds, No, death is sweet now. This shame I can never forget, nor will the world forget. Death is the only way. Then she and her mother clasp hands and jump off of a cliff. Now, of course, this is viciously racist garbage, but it also tells us something about how Thomas Dixon thought about rape. Marion is unredeemable. She's soiled. She's ruined. It actually didn't occur to me um, until I was working on this episode that it also demonstrates exactly what Bloch is identifying in the 18th century, right? That the only way to really prove that a rape was a rape and the only way to redeem yourself after a rape is to die, right? It's reinforcing this older 18th century narrative about mm-hmm. about rape and, and how to combat or how to act after you've been raped. This also brings me to one other really critical component of this myth, that it's harming to women too, right? The myth is ginned up as an excuse to police blacks using the bodies of women as kind of a fulcrum, right? It's not actually about women at all. Women are just kind of the object at the center of this narrative that's actually about white men being super racist. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like black men are the target and then white women are the object. They just figure into it as a tool to racist ends. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. If anything, it positions women as dependents, even possessions that white men must treasure and protect. Now, this is not to say that white women have never been complicit. They absolutely have. And a powerful example of this is Carolyn Bryant, the white woman behind the Emmett Till case. Uh, and, And we know from Carolyn Bryant's own very recent testimony that she lied about the wolf whistle that she says that Teal, you know, did at her that made her feel very intimidated and frightened that made her go to her husband and say, you know, you need to protect me from this young boy. And I also want to just step away from the history here for a second to say that this, you know, this myth is very much still with us. There's um, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, Marissa, but the story that was recently published, an interview with Liam Neeson, where he was talking about a friend of his, a female friend, who was raped um, and told Liam Neeson that her rapist was black. And Liam Neeson talks about walking around at night on the street, hoping that some quote unquote black bastard would come up to him so that he could murder him to like exact revenge for his his friend's rape. Um, I did not know about that, but I, um, there is this case where there was two young blonde white women who were like college age who were Mm -hmm. murdered. A recent case? Yeah. I mean, in the last like five or 10 years, um, who, they were murdered by a black man. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are a lot of websites out there, super like racist, like crazy websites calling him the black beast, which is like. That's straight out of the 19th century. Super 19th century thing. I mean, I've, I swear I've seen prints, you know, of of, like the black beast. Yes. Um, you know, so this oh, 20th idea, century too, I should say. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, the, that, the idea that that is still around is really disturbing. I, I Googled it cause I was, uh, looking into the case for some reason or just curious if it had been solved or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I found all these websites about Ugh. that. So 
this is still a very um, common thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, even, you know, think about the fact that you know, the, the, the man who is currently sitting in the White House as president of the United States once took out a full page ad in the New York Times uh, decrying the Central Park Five jogger case, right? Mm-hmm. When it was proven that these young black men had not committed that rape, um, he insisted that the, you know, the government of New York City and the police had screwed up that case because those black boys must have done it. Because black men are rapists, right? That's so weird. Or yeah. think about the rhetoric around protecting. I mean, why do you think that the president trots out stories of young white women being attacked or murdered by Mexican immigrants, right? right. It's, it's an updated version of the myth of the black rapist. Right. And it, you know, um, the underneath that is, you know, kind of giving people cultural consent to yes. behave violently or, yes. you know, um, with prejudice towards yeah. Hispanics yeah. and things like that. And, but, I mean, he, he talks all the time about, you know, they're about sexual trafficking, right? Like, mm-hmm. or... Um, oh, yeah, that's... Human people, trafficking. People who love Trump um, are like, he stopped exactly. human trafficking. And, again, yeah. I think it's really important to point out that when he's talking about ending human trafficking, he doesn't... He has proven over and over again that it's not, the like, it's not about protecting women, right? Like... He, he's not a feminist or something, you know. Um, it's a it's a means to an end. The the white women in those narratives are a means to his racist ends. I'm getting very political here, but I think it's a connection that we kind of should make to this material. Right. And I don't think that even um, he knows that that's no, what it is. No, I don't is. think so. Yeah. I don't think anyone knew that that's what it was. They didn't think to themselves, oh, man, now I have an excuse to go kill a black guy. Yeah. They really were... They had, you know, yeah. convinced themselves, like, that's the way that their brain was yeah. working, that, but it's, it's... how the myth works, right? Right, but it's yeah. still not, you know, um, we, it's almost like we can see it more clearly now that we're farther yes. away than, than you could have at yeah. the time, right? Um, so back to the 18th century, right, and block statistics, historians have often argued over when the myth of the black rapist first emerged, but one of the main theories has been that it was a creation of the post-Civil War era, when slavery was newly emancipated um, and there was a pressing need to control free blacks. Block didn't disagree with this formulation, particularly because concepts of race were different in the 18th century than they were after the Civil War. Instead, she points out that while it didn't rise to the cultural power of the later myth, the idea became entrenched in the colonial period that black men were rapists and white men were not. As a general rule, blacks were charged and tried with rape disproportionately across the early American eastern seaboard, both north and south. And it's important to see that this wasn't just because black men were being targeted more often for rape charges, but because it's white men's ability to commit assaults and rapes um, that was minimized. Right. So it's not that there's, yeah, they're not targeting these black men. They're letting all the white rapists go. Oh, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, so white men had power over women and girls um, that was often perceived, as we saw earlier, as a justification or an excuse for forced or coerced sex. Black men didn't have that same power. Any kind of illicit or forced sex was interpreted as rape. Right. 
There's also some evidence that it was harder to prosecute white men for the capital crime of rape. And so white men's rape trials often failed and charges were replaced with lesser charges of attempted rape or assault. For instance, John Adams defended a man in Massachusetts in 1768 against charges of attempted rape after his first trial, where he was tried for rape, resulted in no prosecution. White men were often charged with lesser, non-capital crimes, even when their crimes were sexual or violent in nature. In Maryland, for instance, a man, a white man named Henry Gray, was charged with a breach of the peace when he pulled up a woman's clothes and effectively sexually assaulted her. Particularly in the South, black men were also often charged with multiple crimes. A particularly powerful example has to do with what we might think of as breaking and entering or robbery. When a black man broke into a white person's house, they were often charged not only for the robbery or the attempted robbery, but also with attempted rape, since the violation of a white person's house, which housed, you know, which contained vulnerable white women, seemed like just the first step in a rape. So any breaching of a home was also the first step of a rape, whether they actually went after a white woman or not. Mm-hmm. This was a tactic that historians have already identified in the post-Civil War South, but Block argues that this has been happening for a century by the time that war ended. Sharon Block says this, As with laws that set rape by slaves alongside other forms of rebellion, slaves' economic transgressions could also be read as a sexual threat to the white establishment. Right, and that would help explain why during Reconstruction... All of this sexuality, these sexual um, discourses were, mm-hmm. or why, why this racial tension came out in the form of sexual. Um, yeah, yeah. Fears about rape and yeah, things like that. Right, mm-hmm. right. So, of course, a significant part of this whole calculation, vulnerable white women, white male protectors, beastly black rapists, was the absence of black women. Very few black women appear in court rape cases. It should go without saying that this did not mean that black women were raped at a lower rate. In fact, if we factor in the sexual terror that we know occurred within the institution of slavery, then the rate of rape for black women was probably higher. Yet, Block was able to find very few prosecuted rapes of black women. There were a few cases in 18th century Massachusetts, perhaps because it was a culture still influenced by Puritan moral codes. For those Massachusetts cases, for instance, the men accused had also uh, broken other moral norms. One man was a known drunkard and the other was being lewd in public. Yet the cases that did make it to the court system were revealing in themselves. In New York, one black man was convicted for raping a mixed-race child, whereas another black man was acquitted for raping a 17-year-old black woman. The difference in the victim's ages seems like an important aspect of these two cases. The young child in the successful case likely not only made that case more egregious, but also escaped the victim blaming that would have been applied to a black teenage girl who would have been considered inherently licentious. The um, the Jezebel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another New York City case was also telling. In 1808, a white man was tried for assault with intent to seduce. While the man was found guilty of the charge, the sentence was a fine of only $1. While the case was tried and the guilty party convicted, it's clear that the all-white court deemed this black woman's experience to be worth very little. Yeah. Right. So even though they were willing to go through all of the, you know, uh, mechanics of actually trying it and all that stuff, when they get to the sentencing, they're like, okay, that'll be $1. Right. They're like, her purity is not really that expensive, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
All subjects in rape cases, victim and perpetrator, were judged based on their race. White men's reputation was important. If he was known as a good character, it would often be a mitigating factor in complicated cases. But a bad reputation often made it seem more likely that he had committed such a crime. For black men, reputation could play a role, but it was his blackness that ruled the day. In 1817, a black defendant was described as, for a black man, uncommonly good. (laughs) Another witness said that that same man's character was, quote, as good as that of a white man. But even though he had a good reputation personally, the judge in that case reminded the court that no matter what these witnesses said, the man was, quote, from a savage nation and a race that was, quote, filled with insolence and rapacity. So even if he had a good reputation, he couldn't escape his nature, right? He was still trapped by his biological connection to this this race full of insolence and rapacity. Mm -hmm. White women's reputation mostly hinged on their sexual purity. One rape victim actually provided a statement from her Quaker congregation attesting to the fact that she was not a whore. That reminds me, the uncommonly good, or, like, his character's as good as a white man reminds me of the whole articulate thing. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. he's so articulate. Yeah. Um, For a black man. For a black, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, right. Um, So, so, uh, black women, on the other hand, were assumed to be promiscuous no matter what. When Sylvia Patterson accused um, a man named James Dunn, a white man, um, of trying to rape her in the early 19th century in New York City, the court fixated on Sylvia's sexual history, and witnesses came to the court to testify that Sylvia was married to a man who had six wives, um, hung out with sex workers, and even bared her legs in public. Oh, my God. You can tell you're getting into the 19th century there. So um, when the trial documents were published, uh, the published version contained an illustration of something Sylvia mentioned in the trial, that James tried to bribe her husband with an expensive watch if they would not take the case to court. Except in the published version, James was handing the watch to Sylvia while he pulls up her dress, putting the interaction in the more murky category of coerced sex and making her look like a prostitute. Yes. And in the picture, <laughs> she, you've probably seen this picture, she's like... Looks sort of like she's running away, uh-huh. but he's, like, grabbing her skirt from behind and pulling it up. So it is it is still sort of murky because she kind of looks like she's running away, right? But because he's handing her this money, it sort of muddies the waters a little. So. Right. There is this 18th century diary, and it's at the American Philosophical Society. And I was there and had times. So I'm like, oh, let's look at this. Well, this guy, a working class guy, took... an almanac that his employer had and just wrote a sex diary in it. It was like, whatevs, I'll just write this sex diary. In this almanac that doesn't belong to me. Right, exactly. So we don't know who he is exactly. We know who owned the almanac. Uh But um, he he constantly just has sex with people. And sometimes they were screaming and yelling. Mm -hmm. And it makes you think, oh, my God, like, I think he just described rape. But he, like, had no clue. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's just, you know, he has sex with a lot of what he calls black wenches a lot too. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple times he has sex with his servants and then gives them a guinea after and is like, wait, you're not going to tell anybody. Right. And then the servant's like, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, she had to accept that because if she said no, he could like beat her, murder her or something. But as soon as he did that, she becomes like a prostitute. Yeah. 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 It changes it's, the whole nature of it. Right. And, and mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about that a lot in my um, thing about, like, this idea of seduction being, like, a slippery slope down mm-hmm. to prostitution. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It should go without saying that many black men were convicted with ridiculous and obviously falsified evidence. In 1756, Hannah Beeb, Beeb, <laughs> Hannah Beeb accused a slave of rape in Connecticut, although she later admitted that she made up significant parts of her testimony. And even with this fictionalized story, uh, the slave was still convicted. In 1792, in Delaware, Elizabeth Truax admitted that even though she had no recollection, she was pretty sure that an enslaved man had raped her. And he was convicted. In 1819, Virginia, Elizabeth Smith accused a slave of rape, but then admitted that there had been no penetration. He was convicted anyway. On the other hand, courts expected women to provide lots of highly detailed evidence in their accusations against white men. Christiana Wagner explained in detail how her rapist had pinned her and kept her legs propped open. But the Justice of the Peace announced that he couldn't have accomplished the act in the way that Christiana described. Oh my god, and if you've seen 18th century erotica, you know that they are not an authority on how... Like the, the actual <laughs> what, mechanics on of... On the mechanics yeah. of sex. Right, right, right. That's really weird to me right. that, um, that it, it's just so... Yeah, it's, it's the... It's that... Um, Implicit bias that, yeah. and, and, you know, makes people who, who stand up against white men seem less believable automatically yes. just by existing yes. as how they are. And and yeah. the opposite is true for black men, right? right white right. women can go up and say literally anything. Right. And they are convicted. And right? once again, it's not it's not like on purpose. It's not something that you know about yourself. Right. Not necessarily anyway. I mean, yeah, yeah not necessarily. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just. It, and what I find is interesting in this case is that, you know, She's giving details about how he held her, how he kept her legs propped open with his knees. Um, and the Justice of the Peace filters that through his own embodied experience, right, as a white man. And says, well, I can't figure out how a man would do that because I can't figure out I how don't, I would right. do that. I don't Therefore, do sex like that. Right. other white men couldn't have done it that way, mm -hmm. you know. Whereas a black man isn't going to get that same sort of understanding, mm -hmm. right? Because he's he's an other to that yeah. white justice of the peace. Right. That same, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. No, you're right. So um, Jane Mathers uh, described her attack in disturbing detail. Her attacker, James Paxton, had grabbed Jane and, quote, threw me down, pulled up my petticoats, and put it into me. He put his hand in my mouth when I was screaming. I hollered out. He swore he would do it and choked me a little, end quote. She was then cross-examined and asked to provide even more detail. At least, in her case, the court took her seriously. Rebecca Fay also described her rape in painful detail, how the man had covered her face with his body to muffle her screams, how he closed the door to keep others from interfering, and how he assaulted her on a dining room table. Under cross-examination, she described the sensations she experienced as he bruised and hurt her during the act. Despite her testimony, the court found her attacker not guilty. Yeah. That that one was particularly hard for me to read about because it makes me, I mean, it made me think of Christine Blasey Ford, right? Yeah. Like, bearing herself in such an incredibly vulnerable way, talking about the physical sensations, the emotional sensations, mm -hmm. the way that the way that she thought and felt and acted and while those face. things were happening, that, ugh. and how someone can just so so easily just dismiss that right right because um, they're thinking about their own yeah. desires or whatever right. right i mean it but but also for me it's 
how much detail is enough? How much how much detail is enough evidence, right? And in, as these cases are showing us, it, it's never enough. It's never enough detail, right? It's never enough well, because the these is- women didn't do the right things. They didn't kill their attackers. They didn't <laughs> beg for death, right? They were... They, they made it out, and therefore, they're less believable. Yeah, and it also has less to do with the actual event, the actual act, and more to do with their character in general. Yes, right. Like, you know, yeah. if, if, you know, the person she was accusing was some beggar or vagrant, protecting his reputation uh, against scrutiny wouldn't be a concern. Nobody would right. give it. So it, it, you know, it's not, it's not quite so easy as, oh, he just, he's rich, so we paid people off. But it, it's like a, that inherent bias for like, a guy I'm, like him. Yeah. He's a good guy. I know right. people like she him. She must right. be mistaken. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So how do these cases typically end? Well, for a large number of white defendants, the cases were dismissed early on for one reason or another. White men were often given steep fines, but almost always avoided the death penalty. Black men, on the other hand, were very regularly executed. Two-thirds of all black men convicted of rape faced the death penalty. In the South, it was a full 90%. It also wasn't uncommon for the bodies of black men to be dismembered and displayed to serve as a warning to others. In 1739, a slave convicted of rape was executed and had his body hung in chains in Maryland. In North Carolina, the decapitated heads of executed black rapists were placed on pikes at busy crossroads. I mean, that's like some Game of Thrones stuff right there. I mean, that's normal for London, so whatevs. I I know, but we don't, I mean, I know know it sounds naive. I know it sounds like I'm such a 19th centuryist, right? But like, that is just so hard for me to swallow in the United States um, it's it's just, the land of liberty, Sarah. I know. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it, that's just as wild to me and, and horrifying, horrifying. We tend to think of that as things that happened in the, on, in, in the, the ancient far regime past. sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Like not a medieval the, thing. Yeah, right. exactly. Not in the U.S. But of course, that's not true at all. Uh, when they, when they did avoid death, uh, some black men had their bodies mutilated, particularly slaves, had their bodies mutilated to leave the mark of their transgression on their body. After the revolution, capital punishment became less common, less accepted. We discussed this in our episode on the Auburn prison. And while white men's rates of execution went down by about half after the revolution, black men's rate of execution remained just about exactly the same. In our Auburn episode, we also discussed that other physical punishments became less common after the revolution, such as whipping or branding. In the case of rape, that was only true for white men. Black men continued to be whipped and branded, meaning that they were the only ones that carried obvious marks of their sexual predation and criminality. Yeah. And just, you know, from the standpoint of someone who does um, British history, the physical violence against servants and things like that became very outmoded and criminalized way earlier in England than it did in America. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, so the fact that it took till the revolution to for people to stop like beating the crap out of their servants or, you know, whipping them or slashing them if they did something mm-hmm. wrong or whatever. It's really shocking to British historians. And it was shocking to Britons at the time when they would hear of people beating their apprentice girl or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or their slaves. Probably. Because that was, I mean, that was highly illegal and mm-hmm. regulated. And it's just really 
interesting that I wonder if the violence towards white people persisted longer because there was this kind of economy of violence like mm. this. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's not to be like, white people got hurt too. That's not what I mean. But when your mind is accustomed to violence, yeah. you know, it's interesting. Yeah. But we do see after the revolution physical punishment of white people. Right going down right but the physical punishment of black people right. staying the same right and yeah. just it goes down it goes Auburn down just too. how it did in britain mm-hmm. you know a little bit later but you know just how it did in britain but in britain you don't have these larger populations of blacks who mm-hmm. are still being right so there's this idea that, that america is like inherently violent and it's yeah. not exactly it's just there it's a racialized violence it's yeah. not yeah it's not just a General violence. Yeah. 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 So um, Block's book shows that while the idea of black men as a sexual threat against white women takes on different forms and carries different power in the post-Civil War era, um, you know, there was a kernel of it that it existed Long, long before. Yeah, and, and really important. Being an 18th century person, that's like what I'm always saying. Like yes. you, you mentioned, I, I could hear your yeah, voice. Right. <laughs> you say that, and then I'm like, no, this happened already. Yes. Um, but just not. It, it just didn't become the dominant meaning yeah. or the dominant, um, the dominant way that people thought or the dominant notion until yeah. a little later. But it was definitely there. Definitely there. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So you know this episode. Um, and I think maybe you found this as you, you know, listeners, you may, may find this as you're listening to that there are parts of this that, you know, if you felt like Marissa and I kept stopping and saying like, oh, well, this has happened today or this is reminds me of things that happened today. I think it's because it's kind of shocking to me how much in this book still continues to ring true, you know, 200, 250, however many years later. Right. I mean, um, it's still so easy for white men of positions of power and privilege and wealth to use that power and privilege and wealth to get people to believe that they're incapable of rape, right? I mean, it's literally exactly what we just watched in the Kavanaugh hearings, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. he, he, he was able to, even in Congress, behave in ways that no woman could ever have behaved. Right. I mean, this kind yeah. of hyper emotionality and one minute he's crying, the next minute he's yelling. I mean, Christine Blasey Ford could never have done that and be taken seriously. Right. And if um, Christine Blasey Ford had been black, I don't even know if we would have had well, a, right. a testimony. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I don't know if anybody an example would of have that taken it seriously. might be the um, Anita Hill. The Clarence. Yeah. The Clarence um, Thomas, Thomas Anita Hill thing, which happened you know, in the early 1990s. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that did end up going all the way to Congress. But people, I mean, even people like uh, Joe Biden, um, you know, kind of laughed it off, shrugged it off. Right. Um, and so that's an interesting case because they are both black. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think right now we see a really sort of powerful resurgence of this sort of white men's power to reshape the narrative around sexual assault Mm -hmm. and it's not just brett kavanaugh it's also people like brock turner right Mm -hmm. this young man who committed rape and everybody maybe they talk about him as like oh isn't it sad this like wasted youth right like right and instead of like oh isn't it sad that this poor young woman who he assaulted 
has to live her rest of her life right. dealing with its trauma. Yeah. Right. There's a bit of a romanticism behind this sort of, um, you know, like young white yeah. male um, jocular sort of culture. Mm-hmm. There's a, like even women have this like, oh, you know, like boys the, will be boys. Yeah, the boys will be boys, and and like. You know, that's Kavanaugh was playing off of that yes. so much. It was like that was the disgusting part to me. Like I was, it made me so angry when he was like listing all the f-ing stupid nicknames that he called his friends or whatever. Saturday mm-hmm. Night Live made fun of this, yeah. like making yeah. fun of. But the re- he did that on purpose. He did it to yeah. be like, hey, these are just like guys you know, like yes. your friends, whatever. And yeah. and it's infuriating because yeah. you know who cares if someone's the boy next door if he f-ing rapes someone? He's a rapist. He's the rapist next door. But it's like, still so hard for us to see the boy next door or the wealthy man with a penthouse apartment in New York City as a rapist, yeah. right? Because there is so much because it does become murky in the in the ways that it did in the 18th century, right? That, you know, issues of coercion and money being involved and like, well, wouldn't like even if you look at like the Harvey Weinstein things, right? Like I, I I know that he is accused of actual rape, right? But many of those cases that have been women have described are these very gross coercion-y things, right? Like, don't you want to succeed? Don't mm-hmm. you want to succeed in Hollywood? Well, you need to suck my dick, right? Right? Or like you're and making so, a mistake. Yeah, and, and so rape. if you do suck his dick, right? Like, is that rape or is that what is that, right? And I think people still have a hard time. Getting their mind around the fact that even if a woman does the act, right, without being, like, tied to a tree, like we see in the 18th century, that one case, right, that we should still think about that as a rape. Right. Yeah, because it's, like, the the power dynamic makes it so that you can't actually say no. Right. And that's, I mean, I think about this a lot with my dissertation, but it has more to do with the economic, you know, points like people saying oh women abandoning their children whatever Mm -hmm. but when you look at that case by case and you see why people abandon their children you see they had no choice it was death for both of them or death for neither of them but being separated for their whole lives yeah you know it's and so in the weinstein case too it's like you have no choice if you and you take the money you're a prostitute yeah and if you or or, i mean you're not but he could say you are yes right and then right i'm not not saying i'm not saying that's true yeah it's not coming from you no right ethos but if you but if you say no then you know you are a failed uh performer and you like you know live the rest of your life wondering what if and you're frigid and all this other stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like you And, like, you what's can't... the big deal? It's just sex, right? Like, right. what's the big deal? Uh, but, of course... The, the sex isn't even the big deal. It's the, the power part well, that's right. the big deal. But, like, the way that it's framed is, like, well, what's the big deal? Like, we're all liberated, right? And uh, this is sometimes people will blame this on, like, the sexual liberation of, like, the 60s and 70s, right? That, like, you know, we now we have such a blasé attitude towards sex that it's actually has led us to this place where... Um, it, it's made this all much more murky, right? Which is also from this book is you find is oh, I mean we know that's complete bullshit, but we see how it is. You know, Block mentions this also is tied up in the sexual double standard, right? That like as she's discussing it, right? That women are always saying no, so they're never really saying no, mm-hmm. and that I think that's still true today, right? Like women are trapped still in the sexual double standard. We, we want women to be very se- sexually mm-hmm. open and adventurous and whatever, but then we're also punishing them for doing that. And we, 
how often even now are women in at the center of sexual assault cases or whatever being asked about th- their sexual histories and mm-hmm. what they've <laughs> or if you do change your mind at some point like right. this idea of continued consent yeah, like yeah. that maybe you want to do certain things and you don't want to do other things yeah and but when you consent to one thing then uh if you decide you don't want something else then that's not believable yeah. like it's the whole thing like you want it whether you want it or not it's like that's yeah. not you know it's just um it, it comes back to people not trusting women to know what they want yeah and you know sometimes i am indecisive about things yeah. but it's still you still have to trust i mean i'm, I'm not saying that's cuz i'm a woman it's just cause i'm a person right but like you know that you you have to we we just automatically trust men to know what they want right and for women to not know what they want. And it's not even on purpose. We just think of it that way. Right. Which is why men believe that they have to push and push and push and push women into making that decision. Right. And, like, I I would venture that, you know, women listening to this, you know, I mean, obviously, probably, sad, very sadly, a great number of the women who will listen to this probably have had been sexually assaulted or, or something, abused mm-hmm. or something along those lines. But I'd bet for those who haven't, have been in a situation where they felt coerced into having sex, mm-hmm. right? Like, I can definitely um, understand that, yeah. right? Like, that resonates for me pretty strongly, where, like, I would never say that I'd been raped. I would never say that I'd been sexually assaulted. But I certainly have felt that I was in positions where I was didn't couldn't really say no. Right. Do you know what I mean? And that's kind of what some people, like, you know, some gross, like, incels and on Reddit and stuff will say that if we define rape, if we include coercion as rape, mm-hmm. that everyone has been raped then. Yeah. Um, so that goes to show that it shouldn't be rape because then mm-hmm. we're just talking about all sex. And it's like, yeah. no, or maybe most sex is coercive and it shouldn't be. And that's yeah. shitty. Yeah. <laughs> I know? mean, this all gets really tricky because like, I, and I just said it, right? I said, I wouldn't say that I'd been raped and I wouldn't say that I'd been assaulted, but I have, f- have felt coerced. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just because I feel like it's important to differentiate my experience from people who have had mm-hmm. what was, you know, experienced something that was far worse than I experienced. Yeah. Well, you I think know? it has a lot to do with just how it has impacted you personally. Uh-huh. If a sexual assault happened to you and it destroyed your life, maybe mm-hmm. it wasn't penetrative sex, but there's some other reason, you know, right. why it was so terrifying and so destroying. Yeah. You know, um, you can say you're raped. You don't, you don't yeah. like, yeah, yeah. It's, so I think it has to do with your own uh, personal perspective um yeah and, i mean and i think know. that what what you just said goes to show that again what what block is pointing out about these very sort of fuzzy complicated um definitions of what rape is we still struggle with that right like there were all of these she talks about how coerced sex was not considered rape but like it could slide into rape and rape could slide into coerced sex depending mm-hmm. on what the situation was and and I think that's still true yeah. today. I'm right? gonna talk about that exact thing in my episode with seduction. It's on a scale. Yes. And yeah. because of the way that the eighteenth century people use the word seduction we can't know actually whether the right. woman consented or not. And kind of the point is that at the time it didn't really f-ing matter to anyone. Yeah. Um it's a scale of consent, right. which I don't know. I mean, maybe it is a scale of consent. Maybe that's why we can't. That's why it's so hard to define something as rape or not rape. Yeah, is because it's it is sort of a scale. Yeah, yeah. This is this is really it's um, hard stuff. It's really hard stuff, and this is you know partly why I think that when we first talked about whether or not 
um, in this new sex series, whether we wanted to have an episode on rape, one of our initial reactions was no. Yeah. Right? Because it feels like we've been living in a in a moment where it's really hard to be a woman. Like, it's mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to make it sound like it's ever been, like, a really great time to be a woman. <laughs> but it's been a really exhausting couple of years. And right. especially the fall around the Kavanaugh hearings. Like... We're being reminded yeah. of what it means to yeah. live in a patriarchy yeah. is what it is, yeah. of and the consistency. It's not to say that we are in, you know, a worse yeah. position than, so, than right. a woman 100 years ago. That's not it. But it's, it's been it's been tiring. It's been exhausting. Yeah. It's been painful for people who have a history of, of being raped or sexually assaulted. It was a particularly triggering time period. Um, and so we thought, no, <laughs> we don't. Yeah. We don't want to do it again. We don't want to talk about it again. But I also think that it's something that we need to keep we need to keep pointing at we need to, we need to keep identifying these patterns as we see them mm-hmm. in the hopes that someday those patterns like we will have highlighted those patterns to the extent where they'll we'll recognize them when they're showing up again and maybe next time the Brett Kavanaugh won't get away with it right 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 and Based on my experience thus far in my life, I don't have a lot of confidence that that's going to happen, <laughs> but I still think it's important to, to have these conversations. And so I just want to end this episode by saying, we, you know, we talked about a lot of really difficult stuff, you know, even right here at the end. So if this episode was, was disturbing for you, um, if you need to talk to somebody about rape or sexual assault, please contact the Rape Abuse and Incest National Network or RAIN. Uh, They have a crisis hotline that you can reach at 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. And if this episode just pissed you off, um, you might consider donating to RAIN. Um, And of course, get out there and vote in, in our next elections. And hopefully maybe we can try to change things. We want to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, but especially our Augur and Excavator level patrons, Colin, Peggy, Christopher, and Lauren. Your patronage helps keep this podcast going. Listener, if you're not yet a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. All right, that's it for us today. Uh, If you don't already, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, you can always email us at hello at digpodcast.org. We love hearing from you. If you have reactions to this episode, if you want to kind of partake in our conversation, please reach out. Um, and of course, um, we've mentioned this a million times, but we have a Facebook group called Dig History Pod Squad, which is another great place to continue the conversation about an episode. So please join us there as well. Yeah, we've had a recent uptick in, yeah, yeah. in joins. I have noticed that. It's fun. Which is nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and everybody's allowed to post anything you want. It'll be yeah. great. All right. Bye. Bye. Uh, she was pretty sure that an enslaved man had raped her. He was... Sounds like reasonable doubt. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure he raped me. Well, right. Yeah. So we highly suggest that you pick this big... Bi- you pick this big... Bi- <laughs> Black sums this up so well. She says that women's sexual... Wo- sexual wounds. One sculpture made in 1804... Four. Four. Four is how you say that. Four. <laughs> this is a bad episode. Sex manuals like conjugal love or pleasures of the marriage bed considered. Pleasures conjugal of the love or pleasures of the marriage bed. Oh, that's bed the considered. name of the, that's yeah. the 18th mm-hmm. Is it an 18th century yes. title? It has to be. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so we should just start um, right up 
from right up from I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> I, you have lots of words. We in this are podcasters. Yeah, we can do this. We are good at this. So, um, I'm trying to not breathe. <laughs> Carol, okay, go. <laughs> Okay. Super bus. That's super bus. Super bus. Super bus. There was like there was a French band that I think I listened to that was called Super Bus. Um, we just finished an episode about rape, and you're <laughs> drumming me. Um, sexual power. Let's talk about rape, baby. <laughs> I know that's horrible, right? That is horrible. Yeah.